All right, we're recording. This is what's up, everybody? Peace, love, and meat, episode forty. I looked right before. It's not forty from me and you forty. It's forty total on the PLM feed. So I'm just going by oh, those. Cool. I'm just going by those numbers now. You and I are like I think probably fifty-ish or something around there. But uh, this is yeah. number forty on the feed. So we're back now after a couple weeks and some hunts in between and and whatnot. And you're on the road as yeah, usual. Man, uh, as usual but uh you know we actually ross and i usually 10 15 20 minutes before we start recording um we always have like just some catch-up convo and to me i thought it was getting almost too interesting to keep going without hitting record (laughs) yeah just start hitting record now yeah but it's also like i geek out on that stuff um but you got some really cool stuff out of that that hunt yeah and then I was going to talk about some stuff I've been doing with my uh, my shooting, mm-hmm. but how that parallels so many aspects to life. And I think that's why uh, things like jujitsu, archery, mm-hmm. I can parallel them to life. I did it with powerlifting too. And I think that was one of my biggest uh, kind of focal points was how do I relate this to my life? And with powerlifting, I think I did a pretty poor job, you know, like <laughs> I, I maybe did it in the inverse where I made my life about powerlifting, but these other two, I kind of like see bits of, of things that I can improve or do better because of what I learned in a sport or pursuit of archery to my life. You know, it's, it's yeah. different, but why don't you tell me about that hunt, dude? It looked awesome. I know you shared a little bit of the stories, but it, yeah. uh, how, how did it feel going out there uh, with the bow and everything? Uh, th- so this was my second ever like actual archery elk hunt. Uh, the one we went on mm-hmm. last last September was my first. And so there was a lot of just like, I've never done this at this time of year. There's going to be things I'm just out here to learn, basically. Like, if we get close, great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and none of that happened last year. Like, we just got totally skunked and nobody made any noise and never saw anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just how it went. But this year, uh, it was a, a lot different. I was hunting a new area. And I was actually invited by uh, Charles... Witwam from Howell uh, when we were mm-hmm. hanging out at Winterstrong this year, and he had told me that... Yeah, great conservation organization. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. And we probably will just put the, that... We'll probably link them. I'll, I'll link them down in the show notes because they he does... And his, uh, his business partner, John Stallone, was actually out on the hunt with us also, but uh, they do awesome stuff for, for conservation and, like, legislatively helping people get things done and passed and or stopped <laughs> from being passed yeah do a great job for that and well, they do them and blood origins you know yeah both of those groups are people that we support but yeah anyhow not to interrupt yeah it's just it's so important right now like yes conservation 100 100 and so charles and i hung out a ton at winter strong this year and he had mentioned that he comes out to idaho f- for like three weeks every september for his elk hunt he goes to the same unit same area stays in the same general area and asked you know he said if you got time i'm you know please come out i'd love to take you around and stuff and so that's exactly what i did i had just a few days i didn't have a ton of time but it's about a five hour drive from where i was so i'm like i'll make a few days out of it and uh went down there and we did uh two super hard days as far as mileage and just beating our beating our feet the whole time and uh it was it was killer charles is a mountain goat of a of a dude like just doesn't stop on the mountain which was 
awesome and challenging at the same time because like I, I hung with him pretty well for the most part. Um, but he's one of those guys that's like we get to the top of one mountain and he looks over, he's like, ooh, let's go try that ridge over there. And I'm like, oh, I'm following you, man. I'm game. So I was, it was kind of just, you know, teach me, show me, like help me just understand like what it actually takes for a lot of this super far backcountry stuff. And on uh, the second day, I think we ended up doing like a little over 14 miles or something like that total that day, which I was I felt surprisingly good even by the end of the day, like I was, you, it was more just the the fatigue and your body just kind of feels tired at that point, yeah. like joints and everything held up pretty well. I mean, you start to get a little sore, things starting to just kind of ache, but it wasn't like I was broken or I couldn't continue. Like I felt good and I was like, hey, I'm gonna be ready for tomorrow. I just need to sleep, you know? So I was, yeah. I was pretty happy with you- from, from that perspective. Are your miles, uh, like, are you just perpetual motion? Or, like, when I've been out at Big Chino, what we'll do a lot of times, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll get up and we'll we'll hike up a ridge. And out there it's Mason, so you don't have these 1,500, 2,000. There might be one out there that's over a 1,000-foot climb. It's radio towers, what they call it. It's a giant. But it's all gradual. And out to where you're at, it's it's up and down, up and down. Um, It's up and down a lot. Is it perpetual motion, or is it it more like, hey, we're going to – you know, we're going to cover a mile or two. We're going to glass for a little bit, mile or yeah. two, glass, mile or two. It's more like that. It was it was a little bit of both. And I guess from, from my understanding of it, <clears throat> it was that way because we weren't hearing them as much. Yeah. And so when that's the case, you have to look for them so you can see them. You know, like if yeah. they're not making noise, there's no point in moving around a ton and potentially bumping them off. So there was some instances where we did, we did sit for a while. And, and honestly, once there, there wasn't a lot of instances where we sat and had to sit for a super long time. Cause once we sat and started glassing every time we did, we saw them somewhere. I mean, they were far yeah. off pretty much every time, but we knew that they were around even though they weren't making noise. And, and other than if like, we weren't going to do that, that style of it, we would kind of be gradually moving more and just cow calling as we're working our way through and seeing if we get responses as we're moving through woods and stuff. But because they were, you know, there wasn't much noise happening. We had to kind of hunker down a few times and then glass for a while so we could see if we can spot them and then make plays on them from there. But it honestly wasn't too much of a, like we weren't sitting for hours or whatever, trying to find something. We had pretty good luck as far as seeing them once we decided to, to sit down in glass. And so on that day uh, and dealt with, all four seasons in a day across the two days, like just got dumped snow on on Friday for like two hours. And as far as the terrain, like you had you had asked, we there is a lot of vertical up and down and stuff. And where our our camp was was about seventy two hundred feet and like just off the main road right there. And then the highest we got was just under ten. So we were right around ten at like the highest we ever got. So give or take you know, 3000 feet total, like up and down throughout the whole thing from lowest to highest and back all the way down to camp. But we were up and down ridges and like crossing over. And that's kind of the funny thing about how I was experiencing it with Charles was he's like, we get to the top of one and he's like, Ooh, I like that over there. Let's go look and see what that looks like. And it's like, I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm game. And, but when you commit to something like that, you're committing to like, here's 90 more minutes of solid hiking up and down and like elevation and legs and lungs burning and stuff like that. But it wasn't, I mean, there was a couple shady spots where we were on some like kind of rocky 
cliffside type of things coming around the backside. But honestly, it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was super dangerous terrain. It was just steep in a lot of places and stuff. And you just get lungs burning and, and everything like usual. But um, yeah, we made a couple plays on a couple of really big elk that we had seen. Uh, got winded by one at about, he had a group of cows with him. Got winded by him at about 180-ish yards. Uh, watched him peel back around behind us and dip into some timber and then dip over the top of another ridge behind us. And by the time we had gotten up to that one chasing him, he was literally like a mile and a half away in like 30 minutes with his, with his group of five cows. By the time we had seen him again, they were two full fingers over on another timber patch. It was like, I don't, it's unbelievable how the ground that they can cover in such a short amount of time. Like it's just nuts. Um, yeah. I think elk are, you know, I've seen elk and moose kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say on the run, but, like, definitely uh, blown out. They, yeah. They were just kind of, kind of, like, leaving an area. And, I mean, you think about it, you think about a moose, and actually Danny Bolton just posted something about it because he's hunting moose right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're talking about an animal with a five, five-and-a-half-foot leg. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it, it's striding 20 feet every two steps or so. Exactly. It's, like, it's insane. Um, and you just can't keep up with them, but, um, not to interrupt your story, but yeah. I, one of the most incredible things I ever saw was antelope running. Oh man. Um, have, you ever seen, have you ever seen them? Yeah. That was just crazy. We were driving in a car down at Chino or in a truck and they just paced beside us forever. And I look over and we're going like 40, 45 miles an hour in the straight stretches. And these things are, are pulling away from us. Yeah. And it, it was just a big open flat, but. Dude, it's, and they can uh, do that for a long time too. It's not just like a like a sprint for a half a mile and then they're wasted. Like they can go for a lot. Like you you bust one, they're ten miles away before they stop. Like it's yeah, crazy. Antelope are insane, but I, you know more so to, so that people if they don't hunt because I know there's a lot of guys that, that listen to this that ask me about hunting. Yeah, they don't. But it's like you know even saying the wind changing at 180 yards, like you're at the detriment of the elements at yeah. all times yeah. and like it's it's a it's an equal heartbreak but it's even worse when you're close yeah. and that happens you know <laughs> yeah. but like yeah how were, were you guys seeing a lot of uh were you guys seeing a lot of elk because man i'm hearing um from out there idaho a little bit um mm-hmm. actually there was just a post about the selway and a couple other spots but mm-hmm. um some of the the populations are way way down and then uh guy that i know that that hunts an area that kills elk year in year out had said that he had hardly seen a thing really uh, in, in this area yeah we uh I think some, of the, some of the some of the drought and some of the, mm-hmm. the really rough winter i don't know yeah yeah and in well the area that we hunted last year for example got completely de- the population got completely decimated about four years ago with this giant snowstorm that hit the entire state like the whole state calls it snowpocalypse like it was the biggest yeah. snow that hit in like 30 something years just i mean it, it looks like parts of alaska for that that winter like school was literally closed here for like a month like it was wild and that uh that totally trashed the elk population in the area that we were last year and so, yeah. and, and they have like the numbers to show, I mean, it's not just like, you know, guys saying, Oh, there used to be a ton here. Like, no, we can actually tell you that there used to be a ton here, you know, but this year, honestly, yeah. like, uh, in this, in this place that we were, it was different unit, different part of the state. Uh, it took, you know, we were kind of getting discouraged for the first few hours of the morning. Cause we'd hike for, 
you know, that first morning we hiked for like three and a half hours or so. We got going at about six fifteen or so in the morning. Sunrise was like seven thirty ish. And, uh, so we, you know, 90 minutes before the sun's up, even we're out hiking, but we didn't see anything for the first few hours. And then when we finally saw that first group is about nine 45 or so in the morning. But every time Charles said he had seen elk, he's like, it's always around nine 45, 10 o'clock by the time I see my first group. But we honestly didn't have any trouble seeing any, like it was kind of nice. Cause I bet on between the two days we had seen, I think four or five like nice bulls and one of yeah. them two, you know, one of those, in, two of those instances might've been the same bull, but they were so far away where it's like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Cause he looked like he had the same group of cows. So maybe it was four bulls, but, um, there was on the, on that Friday, we had one writ, one finger looking down from us when we were sitting at the top, we were like white out snowstorm. Charles had made a fire in this like little concave rock face thing on the side of the mountain. And I love it was, that video. dude, it was great. And it was, we were literally, that was like the highest peak we were the whole trip. We were almost right at 10,000 feet. We make this roaring fire, like in this little rock thing. And then the rocks like start heating up and radiating heat. It was like white out snow. And it was honestly like the most comfortable I was the entire time. And it was hilarious. Cause I had packed, like pre-made a bunch of like breakfast burritos before I left and I'd wrap them in full and I'd put two in my bag before we'd head out every morning. And I had already had one earlier in the day and I had my other one and I'm like, I've got this in foil already. There's no way I'm going to not heat this up on the coals of this fire and have like a hot breakfast burrito in a snowstorm on top of a mountain. Like you like, there's no way I'm going to not do that. And so uh, me and Charles shared the burrito and it was hilarious and it was awesome. But then when the snow clears, we're looking over and we had seen where those ones that we had blown out earlier had gone to. And on that same hill, on that same finger, there was another uh, like satellite bull that we had seen working his way up towards that group. And like a younger guy, probably like a four or so point on each side. And then down below was one that we had heard. So literally on the same ridge line, there were three bulls that we knew we could potentially make a play for just as a matter of do we have time to get all the way to the top of the mountain for those, that big one we had seen. And we ended up ultimately deciding to go to the bottom and go after the one we were hearing. Uh, Cause he was closer and it was already kind of getting later in the day. So we're like, let's just go for the one that's closer. We can hear him. We know he's down there. And it was a whole big chase around thing. And we kind of ended up like we, what we think is he saw us coming down and he blows out and we kind of getting discouraged and we're just walking our way out and we're joking and we're like, Oh, well we got close to, you know, a couple of them. And, Charles goes, you know, I don't even care anymore. Like, and he kind of makes a joke. He goes, unless one's like right here as we're walking out, like on the way out already. He goes, unless one's like right here, I'm done for the day. Like, let's just head back. And it, I kid you not, dude, it wasn't, it wasn't 40 seconds after he said that this bull rips off a bugle inside a hundred yards from us. And so like both of us just freeze and look at each other. And we're like, oh, okay, well, he's here. So we kind of work our way into some timber and it's getting dark. We're like, it's like 730-ish and last lights at like 802 on this day. So we're literally counting and looking at watches, how, how much time we have. And Charles rips off a couple of cow calls and it's quiet for like five minutes. And then, in the, and then out of nowhere, we hear below us he was maybe 25 yards just here like three big branch crack like steps and both of us yeah. look at each other. and we're about 20 yards apart so charles has one shooting lane covered if he comes up one way and i've got the other one if he comes up the other way and this is where you know the rookie mistake in me kind of, i think ended up kind of costing it was because when we heard him both of us try to get in behind a little bit of cover 
you know, to conceal our, our shape and our outline and stuff. But what had happened was I probably didn't move as far behind something as I should have. And I was out a little bit too far, but I was in my head thinking I'm, I'm doing this risking making too much noise, getting closer to something than if I just kind of take one soft step and lean and, you know, maybe he sees me, but he definitely didn't hear me kind of situation, you know? And so that was like the choice I made. And we, we, we waited for him. We could hear him and we could hear him literally like breathing. You could smell him. So he's probably like, we didn't have a great visual. He was below us a little bit, but what we estimated, he was probably somewhere like 20 to 22 yards, but he was down below us. So we couldn't see him real well. And it's getting darker. It's like 7.59. We have like two minutes, three minutes or whatever, just waiting for him to hopefully walk up. And what we think he did was we had great wind with us, but I think what would happen was he had walked just far enough below us, downwind of us to, you know, because he knows what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to just loop a little bit farther and get downwind of this thing, see if it's an actual cow or if it's something else, and got just three yards far enough that he smelled us, looked up, and probably saw me because I wasn't as far back behind this like shrub that I was trying to get behind. Uh, and then just, you know, he didn't like run away and make a bunch of noise or whatever, but just kind of heard a couple steps. And when we heard those steps, he was 40 yards farther away. We're like, Oh damn. And then we look and it's like eight Oh five. And it's like, Oh, it didn't matter anyways. Like we lost, we were past legal shooting light. But honestly, that was like the first and closest encounter I'd ever had with one. And so in that moment, you're just like, it's kind of crazy how it happens, you know, and I'm, and I know you've experienced this just even like with whitetail coming through everything. Like you've mentioned when it happens, like things are dead quiet. And in that moment senses, I'm like, I, I, it felt like I've almost never been as focused in that singular moment. Yeah. Just from, I'm like, it's dead quiet. I can't make a sound. Like I'm, I'm conscious of how loud I'm breathing, you know, yep. like, cause I don't want to be huffing and puffing and like make my breathing too loud. So I'm like really trying to slow down how I'm breathing and focus. And it just feels like the spidey sense, like vibrating lines coming off my head. Like I can literally feel things around me. It was kind of trippy, um, but it was awesome. And like when we finally realized he was far enough away, we both just like high fived and we're like, damn, that was cool. And that was close. And then he's like, and then Charles explained to me probably what happened. I'm like, well, freak, you know, that was probably, and he's like, well, dude, it was so close to last light we might not even had time for him to come into visual view anyways you know but like that's part of it like you just learn and we ended up getting super close to him and i'm like i'll take that as a freaking win that was awesome you know yeah (laughs) well i I think it is and i mean and i was thinking when you were talking about the noise versus visibility kind of thing um in in that moment where that play is you made the right call in my opinion because it's like okay you can't see him there's a yeah. great likelihood that he can't see you. So right. what's the one thing that's going to tip him off? Noise. But Sound, you know what? Yeah. If if you go back there the next time, same situation, and you're like, oh, this burned me last time. I'm going to go over here. And you hit that twig, and he's gone. It's like they're both the right answer. It just has yeah. to be that the situation yeah. aligns with that. But, but exactly. dude, I'll tell you something. You talked, you talked about um, – you talked a little bit about the idea of, you know, like it was trippy having that feeling of being mm-hmm. so dialed in and focused. I will say, like, when I've done psilocybin trips, those memories to me are super, super, super visual. Like I can remember mm. smells and textures and things like that. The only parallel I have to that, um, you know, it, it is when I hunt. And it's like 
the the sounds, the smells, the color of the grass or the the texture of the bark that I'm sitting on the tree. I yep. can remember those things in great detail. And I don't know if it's like our ability has the the the, the focus that we can tap into all the yeah. time any, yeah. at any point. Or if it's like those moments where it is truly like cellular, where yeah. your body aligns for a singular purpose. Yep. I don't know. It's super, super interesting to me. But, you know, I, I'm trying to articulate it in a way so that, again, so if somebody hasn't hunted, it's certainly a feeling that I could never correlate to anyone else. Because, one, I think everybody feels it differently. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, but also, it's just like, it's unlike anything else, especially, one... Like Ross mentioned, it got super, super quiet. What I've noticed in my time hunting is that when the biggest animals, like the the dominant buck or the dominant bull, mm-hmm. when they come out, because they are dominant, because their herd knows where they are, the herd knows what they're up to, the herd is actually tending to their wants and needs, they are all on like silent mode. Like he's moving, nobody move. Yep. And it's it's like the, the birds stop chirping, the yeah. daggone the daggone raccoons and squirrels stop jumping through the leaves. It's just an interesting thing. And I always liken it to that moment in uh, Lion King, you know, when uh, Mufasa walks out on the rock and like mm-hmm. how all the animals just kind of like there is something to that effect in nature. Yeah. Um, and it's just a cool it's a cool moment, but it's like, man, if you have coal in your ass, you're about to make diamonds too, because that's a sign of like yep. everything yeah. turning on around you. And now this is the moment. Like, are you going to get it done? Are you going to be able to complete your task and yep. see this through? And are you going to be able to kill this animal? Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's like a, it's a really incredible feeling. I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's beautiful in a very, very harsh, natural way, you know? For sure. And what's crazy too is when you like, you go back and you're analyzing everything up until that moment after the fact, right? Like, and it's not even analyzing the things that I did, but trying to remember and just understand everything around me that was happening at that time. Right. And the, the, like the thing that was amazing to me when I'm thinking about it and, and we had talked about it after me and Charles was like, this is a freaking 850 pound animal. I mean, giant. And if, if he was as big as what we thought he had sounded like, he was probably a good at least 5x5 five five or probably a 6x6. Six six. Like, big, huge dude, right? That big throaty gut, that, that gut yeah, 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 and it was deep, and it was rumbling, and you could, like, that when he fired off that one inside of probably 70-ish yards of us, like, it echoed through everything. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is the dude, right? And yeah. uh, But what's crazy is, like, the area he was walking through was super close timber like i mean real close trees together branches and twigs everywhere and the only time we had heard him was like three or four consecutive steps which when you think about it the giant you know just rack of swords that are coming off of this thing's head not making any noise as it walks through this real tight quartered timber like they literally walk through and like weave their freaking antlers around stuff to not make noise like it's crazy how something that big can move so stealthily that like even in the silence of that moment like everybody else is shutting up you don't even know where he is 
during that time. Yeah. Like it's not like the Jurassic Park where everything's quiet and then you hear like the thong and everything's vibrating and everybody's like, oh, he's coming. Like you don't know where he is until like he maybe steps on something that gives him away. But like that doesn't happen very often. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like this is my rip on social media is that some of these guys, one, I will, I will never discount any of the top name hunters as capable hunters because they are like, they right. are, they are stone cold killers. But the idea of the size, the level of the bulls or the bucks that you see, um, the, the brevity that they can hunt, you know, they can, uh, John Dudley talked about it at Winterstrong. You know, he had 18 kills on big game animals. Like for most people that would take, I mean, that's five, six, seven years eight years, yeah. nine years, some, and, and up to 18 years for some people, a guy like Logan Hanks, you know, he might yep. kill one buck a year. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's very, very interesting to me, people's perception of it as, as it grows, you know, and that's what I'm hearing is that, um, there was a guy that had a real great opportunity to kill a nice bull, like a 320, 310 type bull. Yep. Dude, I'm telling you, like, I've seen 300 inch bulls. I could, I mean, you can tell that a 350 is bigger if they're side by side. Sure. But if I was walking, if I was walking up to it just to guess, I'd be like, that's a big ass bull, man. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But, but he passed on this bull because he wanted a 350 plus. And the guide literally told him, he said, we killed one of those last year. Yeah. You know, this, this is, and it's like that number has become like the 160 for the whitetail. Right. You know, it's like, Everybody sees a 160. Everybody wants to kill a 160. I mean, shit, dude. I just, I don't know. Like my views on hunting have changed very, very drastically. One, because my interests have changed. You know, sure. I think, um, and and having been in the industry, been around the industry, like I know myself, and I know that I could very easily become a person because mm-hmm. of the industry uh, rewards. Let's say, like the yeah. the brand associations or whatever. In powerlifting, I got to a place that wasn't in line with who I was because of some of those things. I don't want to do that to hunting. So I, you know, I listen to other guys and I watch other guys, but I always come back to when I go to hunt, like, what is this hunt about? Truly. Yeah. And I set those things out before I go out and like at Cactus Jack. Yeah. You know, you know that you're going to be given an an opportunity to kill a, a once in a lifetime deer. Giant. So, yeah that's a, that's a different set of rules when you go into that hunt. Right. You know, if I'm hunting, if I'm hunting out at big Chino based on what they tell me, that's a different set of rules. So they say, Hey guys, we haven't, we haven't seen many bucks this early yet. We're going to go out here and whatever we see, we're going to, we're going to put a stock on and Hey, we may pull out, but we're going to get some reps. Yep. Okay, great. Or guys, we got some jummies out there. We got some jumbos in the basin. We're going to wait for the big one. And that's a different set of rules. Yep. You have to just, you just have to know what you're going in for because dude, I can tell you, I won't say his name, but a very good friend of mine and a, a contact of yours, um, talked to me personally about it. And I felt that too. It's like you go out in the hunt and it's like, you're there for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And then somebody in camp kills a big deer and it's like, Oh, well I want to kill a big deer now. I want to kill a bigger deer. Than <laughs> All right. So, and it's like, for me, having had that past with myself where I lost parts of myself, mm-hmm. maybe I'm overdoing it, but you know, I, I like the fact that I'm at least asking myself those questions. 
yeah. You know, like when I'm in, when I'm in the stand, if a if a deer comes out and he gets me excited, who am I, you know, unconsciously, this person that's excited by the deer, to consciously talk myself out of that excitement, right? Like you know what I mean? Like oh, he yeah. needs to be bigger or. But sometimes it happens where it's like you get excited and it's like, oh, we have a rule that we don't shoot anything under four and a half. That's okay. Yeah. But to, to, to talk yourself out of something for what's possible. And I just, I don't know. That's a problem that I think a lot of people deal with when they get into hunting is they always think the next one's going to be better. I just listened to that Michael Barrett guy, the guy that he spot and stalked two mountain lions in his life. Got to, four, got to four yards on a mountain line and killed it. Unbelievable, um, dude. No dog, no dogs, no guide with a recurve. So, but I'm listening to him and he's like. It's, that's like the most gangster thing I've ever heard. Like when you told me that the first time, I'm like that. I don't know if anything is from a cool standpoint. Like that is as cool as it gets. Well, and you know, it is because like you think about lions and tigers, like there are people that stalk those all the time. You know, Africans figured out how to stalk them to kill them, you know, with very, very primitive weapons. Obviously, when the rifle came, that changed the game. But for millennia, Africans dealt with the lion and the Indians dealt with the tiger. So people yep. learned how to hunt them. Um, but, man, nobody was nobody was just, like, out and out hunting the mountain lion. They were just, like, this mythical thing. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure an Indian killed one. I'm sure of that. Uh, yeah. Just because of whatever like the probability would be that it has but to have a guy that's done it not once but twice spot and stock. like that's the ridiculous like he actually sees them ahead of time like that's the whole thing about yeah. mountain lions is like you never see yeah. them until they're behind you like yeah. you know what i mean well, it's crazy well and that's the other thing too is like i know guys and, and kind of like you know some coyotes i've shot i wasn't hunting hunting a coyote he just happened to cross my line of fire yeah, you know, and, and that's how a couple of, of mountain lions have been killed with recurves and, and compounds in the past. Yep. Is, you know, hell, out at Chino, we were sitting there glassing for uh, this particular hunt was elk, and look over, well, there's a there's a mom and her cub just like not that far away. Could if I had a rifle, I could have killed her. You know, yeah. uh, just one of those deals. But nevertheless, just phenomenal. But his thing about um, waiting for the next one was he was like. It ended up working out, you know, so yeah. you have a guy like me who has killed some nice trophy caliber animals, um, telling you to, to take what makes you feel good. But then you have a guy that has a wall one. He has no Instagram. He has no fanfare whatsoever. He's killed more stuff than some people have seen born. You know, it's like, it's unbelievable. It, it, it's unbelievable. And the caliber of the stories are like this, but his, his advice was, hunt as often as you can never go back to camp and if you feel good about an animal ask yourself the question is this one tag for this year worth it and he said a lot of times it wasn't so i waited and many times that paid off and sometimes i ate tag soup but he kills giants so yeah well it's crazy a, too a, i was i was gonna say the one thing as far as this whole trip was like a super good learning process for me too about just elk in general right because i've yeah. elk hunted for several years bow hunted them once except before this year right but yep. there was stuff that i had just learned about them this trip that was a lot different that made it really cool and the one thing i took away when i was driving home 
I had thought about this, like as I was kind of reflecting and thinking about it after the fact, but the thought that I had had as we were, after we had seen the elk the first time, like the first ones we had seen on the, on the first day, where we were was like one ridge farther than I probably would have gone by myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? And every, every time you, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, well, you just got to keep going until you see them. Like that's the, <laughs> that's like the hunting advice for elk. It's like, just walk until you find them, you know? Yeah. And, but where in my head, I'm like, dude, that's a big, that's a big whole other mountain in front of me. And I'm like, I don't know if I would have, if I would have done that, if it was by myself or if it was even like me and a buddy that we were exploring this area together for the first time. Right. right. But like. Charles is like, no, we're going to head up and go over this one and wrap around this way because he'd been, I mean, like, he knows this whole area like the back of his hand. He's like, no, we're going to head up and go one more over the top of this one and then wrap around. And it was like, that's, and then as soon as we sat down, it was like four minutes and we had seen that first one walk out. And I'm like, you just got to go one farther than I would have imagined to go. And like, that's the, the whole thing, right? Like if, yeah. in my gut, I'm telling me, no, nah, this is probably far enough for today. Like go one more ridge farther and I promise they're right there. But most people well, won't commit to doing that like full down and then back up a whole other mountain again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, though, is it's like as you adapt, because I can remember, you know, when I went out to Chino that first year, um, mm -hmm. I had the, I had the envisionment of like, Hey, we are going to hunt. So we find these things and dude, that's what I told him I wanted. And by God, we did. We, we stayed moving and stayed moving and stayed moving until we saw them. And then the next year, you know, like not that they were making fun of me, they actually enjoyed it because they were, they had somebody that was willing to go, but, um, I had a, a different guy next year and he was like, yeah, I heard you like to go pretty hard. He was like, well, let me, let me just show you a different approach one day. And he was like, mm. we'll do it my way today and then we'll do it your way from then on. So we go up and uh, we hiked up a ridge nothing 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 and it was that first light you know when they usually start cresting over and moving down or whatever nothing so we move off go to another place and i'm like oh he's kind of doing what we did you know just basically moving around whatever and then that second spot he was like this is where the deer are and i'm like okay can you show me where the deer are and he was like well not yet but he's like i'll show you eventually and sure enough that second move from their bed they just kind of eased over into this area and dude, it was comfortable. It was like, you know what? I've got two hours of just sitting here on glass, waiting for something to move. You know, we're talking shit to each other, having the uh, having the mandated burrito on the mountain kind of <laughs> yeah, deal. Right. But and you know what he told me was, he was like, you can really hunt harder. You can hunt smart. He's like, I've seen guys win both ways, but he's like, I'm out here every day. Yeah. I know there's I know there's deer here every day. You know, it might not be eleven o'clock. It might be one thirty. Right. If we sit here all day, we're going to see deer and that's going to mm -hmm. give us an opportunity. And for better or for worse, we kind of rotated days. Like one of, one of our days would be like, we're going to be chill. We're going to sit here. We're going to wait. And then the next day we would go get after. Them. And then the next yeah. day we kind of chill. I like that rhythm a lot. Like, but then, you know, when you get home, if you tag soup it, you know, if you don't, if you don't succeed, you start questioning you it. <laughs> Yeah, you wonder like how many how many deer did I miss because I was sitting around my fat ass eating my second burrito, you know like. But it's but dude, that's hunting and that's what makes it awesome because I wouldn't trade a dead deer for some of the conversations me and those guides had like yeah just about just about life and about hunting and that kind of stuff and really to me and I don't know if it's because I'm 40, 40 plus now but it's like 
those things, the, the cost of entry is the hunt, right? Like that's the cost of entry. And the, the most people are going there for the trophy. But I bet you, if you sit down and talk to guys like us, like a Bo Sandoval, like a Bert Soren, those type of guys, I bet most of their stories really relate back to a lot of the camp stuff. Like, yeah. Because there's only one kill story. You know, there's only one of those, but you got four yeah. or five nights with your buddies, you know, and those nights are the best because everybody comes back. You're swapping what you saw, what you, mm-hmm. you know, how you, how you fucked it up or how you got it right. And then you have a meal and like, Everybody sits down, and the, the cokes turn to beers, and the beers turn to bourbon. <laughs> and, and you know, next things it's like, well, shit, guys, we gotta be up in three hours. Okay, <laughs> right. and you get up, and you go do it again, and everybody gets up slog-eyed and they're puffy-eyed, you know, and just nobody's talking. Mm-hmm. And then you smell the coffee brewing, dude. It's just fucking awesome. Like, yeah, who the hell doesn't want to get their ass kicked and then have stories? Like, yeah, what what are the stories that people are telling? each other like their grandkids and their kids like hey i went to work and sucked every day you know like yeah that's great if you went to work but what are you doing with your life mm. like i don't know anyway yeah. tire tirade over no it's good <laughs> and and i want to shift it because one of the other things I, we wanted to talk about as far as shooting stuff goes and archery stuff goes um because you've been you we had talked before like we'd said and before we hit record or whatever and you said you'd made some tweaks with shooting and things are feeling really good and i wanted to use that to tell you the exact opposite has been the case for me the last handful of days <laughs> and and, well, and, it, and like the arrows the arrows that that i have like that you sent me are flying great like it and it's i t- it feels like i have the yips almost on technique like nothing i'm doing feels like it should be what i'm doing like i'm freaking tagging my arm every other shot with the string yeah. and it's like and i was getting pissed yesterday i just stopped i'm like dude i can't keep i have like a giant welt on the inside of my <laughs> like i'm done with this today it's ticking me off i don't know what's going on i'm just gonna be done for today and come back tomorrow <laughs> like yeah it's just well, one of those phases so it's one of those things and like i i realized i kind of had this epiphany about everything like in my desire my curiosity and my eagerness to learn i tried a thousand different things and, you know, to some degree, I could shoot relatively well. And then I started shooting with some guys that could shoot really, really well. And if you watch some of those recurve videos, mm-hmm. the guys I shared during shoot to mm-hmm. I mean, they're at 21, 22, 23 yards shooting at like a stuffed napkin yeah. in their target and, and hitting it or being like within a pencil slip width. Um, and it just, it just made me realize how much I was missing out on like hitting the, the foam target uh, as far as like an insert foam on a 3d deer that's a that's a assumptive kill zone and i think because of the recurve i somewhat allowed myself to think okay if i can do that i'm good but with a compound i was like i want to hit a quarter you know i yeah. want to be able to shoot shoot at it and i just not had not adopted that same like i wanted accuracy i wanted perfection of flight but i wasn't like if I look at a quarter, I want to hit that quarter. It was like, if I look at that foam kill zone, I want to hit the foam kill zone. Mm. So I think a lot of the variability of what I was testing prevented me from that hyper accuracy focus. Cause I just wanted to get things good, you know? Right. And, um, I had a guy just message me out of the blue 
and it was on a shot that I had posted in slow motion and uh, it was a good clear visual from my elbow position and everything from behind and I knew I didn't have follow through I knew they didn't have a good release and I just I likened it to the fact that my fingers are super super strong so I could mm-hmm. kind of like control and buffer that release a little bit and just use my fingers and uh, pretty accurate right well you go to the, you go to a traditional archery event and you see 500 different forms you meet a guy that shoots like you that shoots pretty good and it's like okay i'm i'm doing all right mm-hmm. well i started going down the rabbit hole of these like hyper accurate shooters and lo and behold there's like foundational things that are the same across the board for all of these guys so yeah. just a real just a real quick simple breakdown so i don't drag this out for two hours um i used to draw into my nose and essentially the the feather the cock vein that sticks out Yep. would start to get, would start to fill the arch of my nose. And when that was, that was a part of my release mechanism. And when that would happen, I would know I was drawn far back enough. Just keep a little tension on the string. Click goes off, arrow releases. Well, mm-hmm. when I got to looking at what this guy made a suggestion on, my hand and my arm were actually away from my face. So at some level, mm. even if I let even if I let go perfectly, the string has to come in at a diagonal and then go straight. So that's going to cause left and rights at some level. So when I can understand something, I believe in it, and that's what I saw immediately was that my string was away from my face. So I brought the alignment into the side of my face to where my knuckles were touching my cheek. My elbow was back more in a straight line that paralleled the, the hand to the string to the knot to the tip of the arrow were all in alignment. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. I still wasn't finding the arrow visually as well as I was when it was out here a little bit. I think I have a, a sure. sharper per- peripheral for some reason. Okay. Like I could pick up the arrow. So then I was like, well, what can I do next? And I watched a couple of videos of Aaron Snyder. I watched some of Tom Clum's videos. And then I watched this guy. Um, I've been following him for a little bit. He goes by Riverbend Longbows. But he yeah. had kind of a little bit higher arch. And uh, Ray Fletcher's his name. He's a super cool dude. But I had I noticed he was up by his eye as well. So that's what I changed. When I brought the bow up and I could look right down the arrow from right in front of my eye to the tip of the arrow. Um, from Like I told you, from anything close to about 23, 24 yards, if I looked at yeah. it, I was hitting it. Yep. So the thing about it is those changes or like your changes or, or having a new arrow all of that especially when you've just got a stick in a string like the, the variable is you right yeah so you've got to you've got to get the stick in the string singing the same song but you're going to be what makes that arrow fly and i think for so many people like myself i threw too many changes in to really be successful right like right. i was always i was always changing something i was getting good enough feedback to believe in it but not sticking with it. I was always changing right. more or changing something. And what we got to talking about was the parallel of that with training and diet and habits in general is like, you know, just when you think, or, or even an alcoholic is an example, like, Oh, I've got it under control. I haven't drank in seven days. I'll just have one, you know, and then it goes off the rails. That's a little bit of a off point, but the same thing being the principle of we get comfortable when things start working. And we think that's all it takes instead of like, yeah, we'll have to make changes over time, but we Mm. can't just throw haphazard and hope that we can understand the results that we're getting. 
you know, in a positive direction. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that from coaching, you know, some of your athletes, how you approach that, like how do you get them to believe in not changing everything? But then also how do you help them find the staples that stick? Like for me, um, you know, with my, with my diet, I know that meat has to be the basis of my meal. I know that I try not to eat carbohydrates until proximity of my training. I know that I want berry. I want berries in some form or fashion at every meal or a piece of fruit at some form or fashion at every meal. And then a little bit of fat and everything like pretty basic. Yeah. But like that's, that's good info. Some people don't even have that or understand that. So like, how do you help people kind of like trial and error their way forward without turning it into a circus? Well, the, the, well, the easiest way to explain it would be like, and we've talked about it before with habit building and stuff. And it's no different if we're talking about training versus nutrition versus shooting versus ever. It's like, you can't overload the system with new information and expect right. all of it to stick. Right. So you got to find like, what we practice is finding the two, you know, maybe one to three, like highest leverage things that are like, here are the things that are going to make the biggest difference right now. And we're only going to do these one or two things, right? So like if it's training wise, it's let's get on a schedule. <laughs> like, and you've talked about it where it's like you used to, when you were at, a, at your low motivated points, like you'd go out and at least sit in the, in the gym you're like, okay, yeah. I'm here today, right? Like if, yep. if it's, even if it's that, like make the, the choice of this is the thing I'm committing to. I'm going to do a version of that. Whatever I have time for today, I'm going to do a version of that. If it's training, like I'm going to do something, right? Yep. And that way you start stacking those wins day to day. If it's nutrition, it's the same thing. Like I'm going to have some protein at every meal. Like let's start with that. I'm not going to even measure yet. You know, I'm yeah. not going to tell you how much yet. I want you to have some f- source of protein every time you eat something. Like that's literally, if it's one bite of something, you accomplish that task today. You yeah. know, so. In- intentional protein. Exactly. Inten- yes. Intentional protein. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so when you start doing things that are, when I get pushback on it, it's like, I can do more than this. This is super easy. I'm like, well, it might, might be easy, but like prove to me you could do it for three weeks first before we right. try doing something different. And it's the same thing like when you're working on fa- like the the building the foundation of like shooting technique, right? You're not going to start trying to focus on 40 different things on one shot even though we kind of want to think we do. It's like this shot I'm going to focus on like you said lining my elbow up, pulling it back around and lining that up. That's the only thing I'm worried about right now. When I can do that a million times, then I can start worrying about what else is going on because there's well, too many variables to mess up a shot. That it's like, I don't know if it's one until I fix one of them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that uh, I haven't done that was suggested is just a blank bell shoot, just shoot the hay bell. Um, yeah. You know, because there's no target there. And you and yeah. you don't get target centric, you get shot centric. Mm. And But to tell you, you know, one of those things, yesterday I was shooting, and actually in particular the group I told you that I shot three arrows at 23 yards, literally a quarter might be a lie. I'll say a silver dollar. Okay. Like sure. these two, two of the arrows, the carbon was touching and the other one you could have, I mean, you, you might've been able to stick your finger between. So anyway, um, I'm watching this back and it's like, my whole intention is to have like a good follow through, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the first, the first arrow. And what I was doing is on the previous round, I had kind of figured out where my gap was at these distances. You know, I knew that if I looked here, 
that was the relative spot to where it would hit. So mm-hmm. I, I'm like, okay, this is going to be my focus set. I'm going to get everything right. But I became hyper-focused on that spot, which worked out fine. But I watched the video of my release, and it was all my old, like, whop, whop. It was like a, <laughs> just, yeah. a normal, just a normal hand release. Well, then you start getting into the argument with yourself of, like, well, if that's working, why change it? Well, right. it's kind of like the thing with the with a hinge release or a, a tension release versus a wrist rocket. There's only maybe two or three guys at the top level in the world that are using a wrist rocket at high level target competition. Right. Not not saying that with their methods and whatever it doesn't work. Obviously, it does. But man, the majority goes the other direction, and it's like. Okay, if you're if you're gonna be the guy on the island, if you're gonna be the guy that shoots this, there's no life raft. Like you have to figure it out yourself. And if everything else falls apart and the wheels come off, well, you're gonna be standing there looking at your little hand, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. So as a default to know that one, I am not good enough, nor at forty one coming up on forty two years old, do I have the time to lose mm. spending spending on an inferior form? let's say yeah uh why not just make the conscious switch and try to stick to that but man i've got thousands of reps with that little funky hand release that i do (laughs) right so it's like when my focus shifts one degree i'm susceptible to that and i think there's a story and a moral to that story and everything it's like man don't sleep on your on your vices like be my vice being that comfort zone of my Mm -hmm. hand and um you know, I'm going to, I am going to revert to that. And I'll tell you, shot a pig in Oklahoma and that was my reversion. I went back to the hand away from the face. I went to that hand release and with my new aiming point being true, because that's what I was focusing on. was like, this is what you've been practicing. Put your aim right on him. Mm. The back, the back end of the car, the car fell apart. You know what I mean? Like the, the hand yep. back here, the anchor point fell apart killed the pig i'm certain but did not get a good blood trail did not recover the pig like it it was a good shot but man pigs only bleed if you shoot them well in one area right and and this was just back in that rear lung liver probably got some guts kind of thing it was a one-sided kind of had a steep angle and the difference in that being if it had been against my face it would have hit the front shoulder and gone through and been devastating and it just angled outside the leg and caught that rib and went back through. So, again, thank God it was a pig and not a not a white-tailed deer or an elk or a mule deer um, to learn that on. But, man, in those stressful moments, that's what I'm thinking about now when I shoot. I'm trying to induce a little bit of stress to see what falls apart when I do get rattled. Um, yeah. But, man, the recurve is so damn hard. Like, it is yeah. so damn hard. And to my point being, I almost wish I didn't know as much, you know, like it was, it was more fun yeah. when I didn't know better kind of yeah. thing. And, mm-hmm. and not to say it's not fun now, but it's like I'm becoming, or I am pursuing becoming a technician of it. And, you know, just winging arrows at a target and feeling good because you hit foam is no longer the, the joy. The joy is now like, let's become a, a let's become a killer, you know? Yeah. For sure. And that was in that regard too. one of the things back to the elk hunt for a minute, I was going to mention, and I'm glad you just said that because I forgot about it before, but in that moment where we're waiting for that 
able to walk up, right? And he's, you know, inside of 30 yards. We don't know where or whatever. Everything prior to that, I was, I wasn't sure how I was going to be in that moment. Yeah. Right. Like, am I going to be nervous and have the shakes? Like what, you know, am I going to, what's my just overall kind of demeanor going to feel like in that moment? Cause I don't want it to be something that's going to cost me. If I actually draw back on this thing, I don't want it to cost me a good shot. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe part of it was because he never actually came up. And if he was, and I had drawn back, I might have been in a little bit more of an anxious position, but man, I was like, that was probably the, like the most cool, I felt the entire time yeah. like that was, and you know, you can trace that back to doing sports my whole life and having to, you know, and you're the same, like having to do something at a, at a high level and compete when the lights are on type of thing, you know, yeah. you kind of learn how to channel that. And, and I was nervous about how I was going to handle that. Cause I haven't been in that situation before. I'm like, I, this is brand new. Am I going to be able to handle it? Like I did when I was competing in anything and I could kind of just channel that. And I was glad that I was able to, because I literally felt, you know, to use kind of a toot my own horn, you know, type of phrase. Like I had pretty much ice in my veins, like in that moment, just because I was like, I actually feel super solid right now. And I'm happy that I'm not jittery and nervous in this moment, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, man, like I, uh, I, there are certain things that I tell myself, you know, when I know that I am picking up my bow with intention to kill, um, one, the first thing I always tell myself is you better kill this motherfucker. That's like the <laughs> first thing I tell myself because it's like, that's what my whole entire prep went for. Like, yeah. I, I'm not here to shoot an arrow uh, to feel good about it. Like I am mm-hmm. here to, to kill this animal so that I can harvest meat. Huge distinction. Like I'm not harvesting meat from a, from a dead thing. I'm, I'm or a, you know, a factory. I am yeah. killing something to harvest the meat to eat. So that's the first thing is you better kill this thing, motherfucker. And then second, I kind of go like when, when that initial knee jerk reaction response comes out, then it's like, all right, this is business. Like you, you do this every day. So I go into that mindset of, of flow and like, just, I have a shot process that I take, I have a checklist, you know, and I get my bow drawn. That's number one, like get the bow back because there was definitely a, a draw when I was younger. I, I started to draw on a boat. And actually, my first uh, draw on the water buck in Africa, dude, I was a rat shit and razor blades. Like, I couldn't even get the string back. I was so nervous. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyhow, that's my first thing is get your bow back, find your anchor, find your peep, center the housing, put the pin on a hair, and then shoot. And it's like, don't even look at the rack anymore. Like, if you've drawn your bow back, you're committed. Um, yep. And that's that's how I look at it. Now, there's variables like if the wind changes or if something walks out in front of it, obviously, that's a different story. But, like, when I draw back, I intend to kill that animal. Um, yeah. But, dude, I have a real problem now that I've kind of assessed, and it's with the recurve. Um, and it's definitely pressure I put on myself, you know, and it's like I, I wrestle with the question of is this the, the desire to, like, are, am I seeing the Instagram pic of the pig? But before the the work is done, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Is that is that the root of the stress, or is it just the situation? But um, typically, like when I've gotten close to mule deer, when I've gotten close to, to whitetail, man, I am like cool under pressure. But I've always had my compound. You know, I, I killed that. Right. I killed that uh, that doe, but I was in a tree stand, so it's a little different situation. That doe with my recurve. That right. Was my recurve. Yeah. So. 
you know, when I get close to these pigs, in this particular situation, the one where I shot back of the leg, I'm thinking about that, you know, it's like, I'm at you know, 100 yards or so, and I, and I see the thing, and we're walking through the woods, and we're getting, we're getting closer, getting closer, and it's like, all of a sudden it comes time to shoot, and it's just like, my stress level, as I got closer, was building and building, because I was like, I don't want to blow this thing out, I don't want to blow this thing out, so I don't know if it was that, but when I got to the shot, I wasn't thinking about my process or anything. It was just literally like, yeah. just hold that aim and you got this thing done. And I've never thought that on an animal before. Like, it's a done deal, you know? And like, especially right. with the recurve. Like, where did that where did that bullshit confidence come from? <laughs> and <that> I think, <laughs> <Right>. because <laughs> first time. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like me trying to uh, override the stress with overconfidence and I think that is you know and that's the feeling I've never dealt with before and like Mm -hmm. I'm not happy to be telling that story but I'm happy to share it because it's like you know if you find yourself in one of those moments where your stress is like starting to pound down on you I think about it now you know relative to trail camera pictures I've seen of these pigs when they're feeding I mean they're there 20 30 40 minutes sometimes two three hours and here I am like Rambo in it, trying to get up there and be the hero and get it done. When really, if I'd have laid back another three to five yards, maintained a little better cover, the damn thing might have walked into my lap. You right. know, and, and it's just that urgency that I think that we put on ourselves. And sure enough, there's times there's times you need to be urgent in hunting. But man, I don't know. I, I've never really forced a shot that paid off. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, and I saw one the other day that somebody was celebrating it as like a green shot. This buck is coming. It's an Iowa giant. This buck is walking uh, right to left on the screen, and this hunter draws back, and their arrow actually deflects off the tree, bends around, and hits the deer perfectly in the lungs, kills it like forty yards away. But the deer wow. there was not there was not another tree for thirty yards in front of the deer, and the deer is literally walking right past this tree it's like why is that your shot you know like yeah. unless you just wanted a, like a tight shot for your camera you yeah. know like that's not the shot to take ever like and, like uh, wait four seconds <laughs> yeah yeah wait wait four seconds and he's probably going to give you a full broadside where you can see hoof to hoof you know but i don't know man i the the recurve stuff is really man i've been in my head about it a lot as a hunter because it's like well, you know, I shot that stag and we never recovered it. I know he's dead. We never recovered it. Uh, I don't want to speak ill of the effort to find him by the guides or anything like that because they look and they watch for birds just in a terrible area. He, like, literally went in six and a half foot tall grass and no, just a fucked up situation. You're going to trip over him the only way you're going to find him. Yeah, basically. And, um, you know, so to lose that and then to, to shoot that eland and, thing fucking just bounce off its skin like what the hell but I killed a water buck and then I went on a tear I killed some deer and some pigs and like you know my confidence was pretty high and then you know it's just so funny how quickly like one bad shot can weigh on you because that's what that was the genesis of coming back and like really trying to figure out how do I shoot better how do I shoot more consistently how do I make things perfect how do I not shoot a softball size group of 20 how do i shoot a baseball how do i shoot a golf ball yeah and because there's guys that do it and you know it's like 
I got to be real careful to keep it fun because I'm in that place right now where it's almost about to become like, it's about to become a thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm not fearful of that because I'm talking about it like to you and stuff, like being aware of myself more now, but I don't know. I just want to shoot well and have confidence with my bow. And that's where I'm at. Like I'm, I'm not changing anything for the rest of the season. I've got a build that I love and, my bow's tuned, so right now, it's, you know, I'm going to start hunting pretty hard probably this month because October rolls around because that's when I like yeah. it. It feels like deer season to me, whitetail season. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to put it to work, but I don't know. Sweet, dude. We've got, I think our, what, today's the 29th. Yeah. Deer opens the 10th. Okay. Uh, and and you that's guys general. You guys can't, can't kill does at all, right? Not unless you're youth. Youth are the only ones that can can kill does. And uh, you're only, like, you only get one non-res price tag. Or one, excuse me, one resident price tag. Uh, And then any other tag you purchase has to come from the non-res pool, like, as a first-come, first-served thing, and then you have to pay non-res price. So it's, I mean, unless you're on top of it, timing-wise, like, most people usually just get one deer tag every year yeah and what's cool in the area that i'm in anyways the season that opens up on the 10th is any weapon it's rifle it's you know you can do anything for that season and it's only like in some units it closes in like 20 days and some use some units it closes in like 15 days oh Uh, so literally we have like a like at most the general season is like three weeks long at the most and uh but in in the unit where I live, uh, I can do the archery only season in November during the rut as a main uh, as a main tag and not have to do a draw tag. Like that's a main over the counter tag, and there aren't many over the counter archery November tags. But the one that I the area that I live in is one of them, and it's only like I think it's two week season in the middle of November. So we'll see how October goes. If there's something, if I can connect on something in October, then that's great. But if not, I'll have another opportunity in November for deer. Anyways, are you married to to your bow or uh, you open for a rifle? I might be open for rifle in that October just because it's fun. And that's a, that's a different hunt that I get to do with a buddy. And so we usually, that's usually been our rifle hunt that we do every year. So we'll see if it is able to work out, but um, I'm, I'm good with anything. Like I'm not yeah. going to be picky about it this year. But if it doesn't work in October, I'm going to be pumped to do archery only deer in November and give that a yeah. go. But also going to do a um, got a bear hunt. I'm going to do in October. Uh, I think in like the third third week or so of October. So about three weeks from now, or three or four weeks from now, um, with my with my buddy Zach Hansen, who I had on on my pod That's- just like two weeks ago. He wrote yeah. that book, Turning Feral. Yeah. Um, and he lives, he has a, a cabin just a few hours away and has bears all over the place up there. So we're going to go try and get on some bears in a few weeks, which will be fun. Well, damn it. <laughs> Dude, tell me about it. Should have got you. I mean, you were going to come out, but fires blew you out everywhere up here. I mean, that was yeah. a rough week to try and make it up, but yeah, it was, was everything in the entire Northwest was on fire for a f- couple of weeks. Well, honestly, man, that's my, that's probably my bucket list animal right now is the black bear. Just yeah. because it's, you know, it, it, like, you know, I'm looking at it from a recurve standpoint. It is a, it is a recurve lending animal. Like you can, 
you can hunt them when you get close. So that's yeah. probably my my number one because you know it's a fucking affordable. I mean, like God damn, yeah. some of the grizzly bear hunts are like, I mean, they get they get, they start at twenty and go up. So it's yeah, like, it's insane. Grizzlies are just you, yeah, and if you can even get one, you know, it's like that's the other I don't thing. Know. They're so hard to get those tags. Yeah, and I mean, and uh, they don't even have them in Idaho. There's no grizzly hunts in Idaho at all. Yeah, so. yeah, it's uh, it's crazy what some of the tags have gotten to. I, I think this year is going to be the first year that I like dedicatedly do some of the REMEF raffles. Uh, nice, you know, they're you know they're like 10, 15, 20 bucks to enter for a draw or whatever. But man, uh, I know three guys that have won in the last two years. You know, like guys that I'm standing there with at the event. I'm like, oh, you're gonna go waste twenty bucks and like, ah, oh, I want a ten thousand dollar. Whatever tag, you know, it's one of the mountain, mountain <laughs> right. goat tag. So, right. uh, you know, that's cool. Um, but yeah, I, I am worried about hunting and not to start up a whole nother episode. It just, I love that it's gaining popularity because volume is, is a voice, you know, and we need voices. We need people to care about everything. I just hope people get into it for the right reasons. They get into it for the diversity of hunting. Yeah. You know, don't just look at it as elk. Don't just look at it as like, that's the only thing. I mean, predator management is so needed right now. It's insane to me some of the stuff that's going on with the predator hunting. Like the fact that Colorado's introducing wolves and then banning or proposing a ban on mountain lions, lynx. What are you trying to do besides destroy yeah. elk and deer and moose populations in Colorado? Like, what are you really trying to do? Yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, here's a school. Let's turn some pedophiles loose. You know, it's 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 equally as devastating to that population. Like that's a terrible parallel. Sorry, but it is it is doing the same type of thing. You're putting a predator amongst the innocents. You know, and it's yeah. like they're talking about thousands of wolves in Colorado as an introduction. I just shared that post on the thing in Idaho. I, I don't want to give the statistics falsely, but it was like in 1995 or six they introduced 12 wolves. And then, like, sometime later, like, 2005, it was 512 wolves were now in the area. And then mm -hmm. by 2011, it was 800 and something wolves were now in the area. Well, the elk population upon release was 16,000. And at the end of, at the point of this study, it was 1,000. You know, so it's like, yeah. I mean, there's real world evidence out there if these dumb fucks are just take a second and read it. Like, it's, it's not a good thing. Like, I, I love wolves, too. I love seeing them. I, got, I was, like, stoked out of my mind to, to see those two wolves sitting shoulder to shoulder at the Everly Stock Farm howling. Like, yeah. we woke up we woke up in a river or beside a river freezing to death. Like, it was so cold that night. And we wake up, and everybody's, like, shivering, putting on their clothes. And I think it was Jamie Shira at this point's over there, and he's like, hey, look, there's two wolves. Get out the binos, you know, 380, 375 yards away. They're just sitting shoulder to shoulder looking at us, you know. That's and so we cool. heard them all night and it wasn't just two so it's yeah. like it's a real problem most people don't care most people they just want to get the they just want to get into hunting so they can kill something they don't care about predator management they don't care about killing does like if you're going to whitetail hunt kill does like it's so important don't just kill your bugs yeah and in places you're them. allowed to anyways because here you're not well, <laughs> well it's and this is to tell you how bad it is there's a couple of states that have gone to a mandatory doe kill before you can get your buck tag. Oh, really? Yeah. And I mean, people just go out there and they literally just go to kill the horns and like money makes the world go round. And I'm thankful that those hunters put money into the market 
that keeps the fish and wildlife going. But there is a better way, a better mm. way. That's all I can say about it. Maybe <coughs> we'll get into all of that in another. We might in need another to get pod. Have somebody way smarter than us because I'll just I'll just throw feelings out there. I'm like, <laughs> right. listen to science, motherfuckers. <laughs> listen to science. Now, it'll be an emotionally driven ply for, for like for, for science. But you know, somebody like uh, you know somebody like the guys at House, somebody like the guys at Blood Origins, yeah. like Charles, Robbie, whoever. It's like but we have yeah. we have so many resources that I think probably throughout the year we ought to just have people on that are speaking to things that matter, like not just for hunting. Like if you matter, yeah. if you're doing something that's important, we probably ought to talk about it or talk to them. It's a good idea. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> All right. Well, here's like, let's pose that question that we were going to talk about a little bit. Let's pose that question as a thought provocation to end this. And then maybe okay. just discuss it a little bit, uh, the next episode. But yeah. I was talking to, talking to Ross, I was thinking the other day, you know, we're inundated with this absent father, you know, boys, neither fathers kind of thing. And I, I, I believe that, and I think I, our society today is suffering because of that. But if you look back, and there's so many of these same pages that share the Stoics and share these Roman Empire ideologies of like become the warrior, become this strong man, become whatever. Where were the Romans? Where were the men that were in the Roman army for decades? You know, they were at war. So, do we need? absent fathers that are fighting for something or do we need a society that everyone understood what was being fought for and the children weren't viewed as my children they were viewed as our children rome's children Mm. and it was more of a community driven effort and to to give you another parallel on that there was a the one of the native american actors from yellowstone uh, the guy with the long ponytails the twin ponytails yeah Um, I shared his post the other day, but he was talking about the ritual of birth in their tribe. He said, before the birth mother holds the child, every woman in the village is called to pass the child around because whether they're old or young, they're mothers now because this child is our responsibility Mm. because, because our men will be fighting and she will have more children, you know? And it's like, these are our children. And, I don't know if we're missing that boat. That's where I want to leave it as far as like as a as a provocation of thought. Is it like right. is it that our men are not with our children as much because of bad relationships? Is it because our men are at work? Is it because our men are at war? Like our men are gone, but men have been gone forever. Why is right. it why is it harming our children now? You know, like more, more, more seemingly so than ever, because we, we point to these things. We point to the Native Americans as a way to live life. We point to the Romans as a way to structure a man. We point to Spartans as a way to structure a man. We point to the samurai as a way to structure a man. We point to the monks as a way to structure a man. But all of those are absentee men. Hmm. But we re- we revere them in our current culture. So I'm curious about that. I'm curious about, um, you know, the, the perception of it's our children. And can we even have that in America? Because is, right. is this, do we have a concept of our nation? 
that's a, that's a, that's a multifaceted front, but I think it all stems back to something is wrong here that was working in other places elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Through time and space, you know, like, right. So. Yeah. We'll tease that. And maybe we'll do that as part. Maybe we'll add part of that as the journal journal. I think so. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, and then we'll like re rehash it and spend, be able to spend a lot of time on it. Well, um, would you be open to like, uh, if whatever you journal about it, I mean, maybe we can just read them as an entry yeah. or, or a yeah. portion of, you know, just pick a paragraph or something that yeah. spoke, speaks out or speaks to the ethos of what you wrote. Yeah, for sure. I like that. All right, gang, that'll do it for this one. Uh, go sign up for the newsletter. We are working on merch stuff, hopefully shortly. I don't yeah, even want to put a timeline on it, but we're hoping in the near future. Yeah, just for That's transparency, we've got two general ideas that we've discussed a little bit, maybe three, and we're looking to get four, I think. It's yeah. kind of like the, the general design concepts. We want to have four approaches to shirts, maybe a couple of approaches to something like mugs or yep. hats, whatever, but four designs to just think on, and we're at two to three. So yep. We're very close. So, yeah. The goal is soon. So hang tight. <laughs> All right. Appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. All right. Peace.